Morning, church. How y'all doing? Good. Happy Thanksgiving. Who had a good Thanksgiving? Anybody? So any, anybody in this room is Thanksgiving your favorite holiday? Thank you. Seriously, it should be. It's amazing. There's awesome things that are going on. Uh, this, this Thanksgiving, we didn't have to watch football or anything like that because the results weren't so great. But other than that, man, Thanksgiving's awesome. Church, it is an exciting time to be at Cedar Home, is it not? There are so many reasons that we should get up in the morning on Sunday just jazzed to be able to be a part of this body. And we talked about throughout the entire week, we should be so excited to be plugged into all the things that are happening. Jerry Kind just came up to you and articulated a way in which we are supporting the Great Commission in the world today. That is something that a healthy church is mindful of. Amen? And so you know now that you can, what, how did you say it, Jerry? You can be elevated? You're, I don't know. He, he said it way better than I, what's that? You can lift your spirits through uh, supporting these missionaries. That's something that we need to be mindful of. We're heading into the Advent season, and I already mentioned last week that it is an exciting time because we're going to be working through five weeks of what Advent actually means. A story of redemption, working through all of Scripture and how it inevitably pointed to the climax of creation, which is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and how we now anticipate through Advent the second coming of our Lord. That's going to be an exciting time. And then at the very beginning of the year, we're going to be working through the book of Colossians big picture of Jesus, right? A letter that Paul wrote that points to the gospel through the lens of who Jesus is and what he has done, describing him in ways that nowhere else in scripture is he described. And we're going to do it in an exciting way. Eric actually gave me an idea this week. He's sick and we're going to pray for him. Uh, but, but he said this week, he calls me up and he says, you know what? You had said that everyone in this church ought to be reading through Colossians between now and the time that we're studying it. And that uh, husbands should be working together with their wives to instill a knowledge of this book in their children before we ever open it together as a church family. And so he said, maybe we should put something in your hands, right? That's what we're going to do. We're going to create a study guide as we study through scripture that you all can have in your hands so that you can read it beforehand before we ever get into Colossians. That is terribly exciting. But today we're going to be going through Romans. Last week we went through Romans chapter one, and this week we're going to be looking at Romans chapter eight. I brought goodies for you. I don't know if anyone has ever done this before. I'm not trying to sell you books, but I want to recommend you a book. The Bible is the resource that we should turn to first, correct? Well, there are tools that Christendom has come up with over the years that help us to understand how God's work, uh, word works. And so I wanted to recommend a couple to you today. You can't see them, uh, which is unfortunate, but this first book is called A Concise Guide to the Greatest Letter Ever Written, and it says Romans, right? Spoiler. This guy considers it the greatest letter to ever be written, and his name is Andrew David Nacelli. Okay? You can write that down. I don't see anyone writing this down. This is a great commentary, okay? You wanna, as you, if you decide that you want to read through Romans after today, you want to study more than just chapter 1 and chapter 8, this is a great tool that you could have at your side written by a very intelligent man who is able to articulate the truth of God's Word in a way that, that we can ingest and we can apply to our lives. So that is Romans, and it is written by Andrew David Nacelli. The second one is this. Today we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. Spoiler, okay? We're going to be talking a lot about how the Holy Spirit weaves into Romans chapter 8. And there is a book about knowing the Spirit. That's the title of the book. And it's written by a man named Kosti Hinn. I probably didn't pronounce that correctly. A lot of you might have questions about the Holy Spirit. 
right? We are confident that we know who God the Father is. We, we hear so much about the Son. We know who Jesus Christ is, his life, his death, and his resurrection, but the Holy Spirit's kind of mysterious in a lot of ways. Maybe we even have some misunderstandings about he, how he operates in the world today. We're going to talk about that today, and that's going to be awesome. But if you want to know more, I recommend that you go get your hands on this book, Knowing the Spirit. In fact, I'm so excited about these two books that the first person that comes up to me and talks to me about it today, I'll give them to you. Why not? That's, that's not a way to get you to come to Cedar Home again, giving out free books. I probably will never do it again. But if you are excited about studying Romans or you want to know about the Holy Spirit, you come find me after service and we'll talk about it, okay? Today's message is going to be in Romans chapter 8. We are going to be going through verse 1 through 27. So I want you to turn there today in your Bibles, get your phones out, open it up to Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 27. I'm going to pray for our time together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, for the ways in which you are actively working in our lives today. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have today to gather as the people of Cedar Home, your church here in Stanwood, to worship you through song, to worship you through the presentation of the gospel, Lord, to worship you through our minds just being reminded both of the power of your spirit and the way in which you are actively working in the world today through mission. God, would you allow us to be a people that would, that would know your word, that would be led to worship because of the knowledge of who you are, that would be reassured that we are your children, and that would be actively challenged, Lord, not to be content with one foot in the church and one foot out in the world, but to be wholly set on the, the way in which you have called us to be saints, the way in which you have called us to be a people Help us now, Lord, as we get into your word. Help me now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Amen. We're working through Romans, and I told you last week, Romans is a letter written by a man named Paul. Does anyone remember the three ways that he described himself in Romans chapter 1? What was the first thing? He was a... A servant, a slave, right? A slave to Jesus Christ. But what else? What was he also? Called to be an apostle, very good. And the last one? Set apart for the gospel of God, okay? He grounds his identity in the gospel, in who Jesus is. That is who he is. But then he also writes to the Romans, and he is calling them to be saints, to be set apart, to live holy lives that bring glory to God. And so now we know as a church that we need to ground our identity in Jesus. We know that we need to know the gospel that describes him, and we know that we need to live that out as the saints that he describes us as. Now, in the entire rest of this letter that we have unfortunately skipped over, maybe one day we'll be able to come back to it, he has been working systematically an argument to support those things. Uh, chapter after chapter, painting a, a fuller picture of this central argument to the Jews and to the Gentiles that the gospel of God is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so now we know that we are not only supposed to have a new identity as the children of God in Christ, but we are called to be obedient children. 
children that are concerned with the commands of God. Paul spent some time explaining that belonging to Jesus means that you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that you must present yourselves to God as those who have been brought to life or brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And so we know we are not just a people that have been saved from something. We are a people that have been saved to something. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that thought pattern for every single person in here who calls themselves a Christian. Because the longer that we are Christians, the more we realize that following God's commands, even as a born-again believer, is easier said than done. Right? We stumble. We fall. A wise man once said that during our earthly life, the Christian will always have the residual weakness from their old humanness, the old fleshy person they used to be. No matter how closely they walk with the Lord, they are not yet completely free from sin's power. There's a wrestling that happens in us every single day, isn't there? The more we become aware of, of God's commands, the more we don't become better at obeying those commands, the more we become aware of how much we need Him, and we're compelled to worship Him as a result. And so leading up to today's passage, Paul has been arguing that although we have a new identity in Christ, we have this new life and we are a new creation, we still live in a world where sin has influence over our lives. And I'm about to read something to you that's, man, it's one of those texts that people wrestle with. Like, what does it even mean? Why would Paul write this, right? It's in Romans chapter 7. Anybody ever read Romans chapter 7 before? Oh, you know where I'm going. You know where I'm going. Listen, the apostle Paul, he, he has this moment starting in verse 15 where he confesses something to the whole church. This is what he confesses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from the NLT, okay? That's, that's a little change up. A lot of times we're going to read from the ESV when we're learning here. Um, but the ESV is a little clunky when it comes to this passage. And I, I want you to be able to understand phrase for phrase what he's trying to say. So, so follow with me starting in verse 15. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. If I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle in life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is in war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Now, does that sound like a person who's warring within himself? It does. It sounds like a man who is warring with himself. It's, it's flesh battling what he knows is righteous. And as a shepherd, Paul is exampling to the church that he knows uh, something that he knows all of us deal with. Christians, this should have sounded very familiar to you if you have been at this for any, any longer than a day. That we know God's commands. We, we want to live them out and we inevitably end up doing the thing we're not supposed to do. Paul doesn't leave that as, uh, us in a state of, of, of feeling like we're drowning, though. He's a shepherd. 
So he's showing us that even though we might be a new creation, even though we struggle with sin and temptation in our lives, God does something about it. Verse 24, he says, what wretched a man am I? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. It is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Where is the hope in all of this? Paul asks, he says, it's in Jesus Christ. It's what God does. And so as we begin Romans chapter eight, verses one through 27, Paul's going to set the stage for us to understand this battle between sin and obedient works in the Christian life. And he begins with this verse that, that you've probably committed to your memory. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a context to that verse. Isn't that fun? When we don't just memorize verses just by themselves? Because the key word there is condemnation. Anybody know what that means? Condemnation? It's a big word. It's okay. It's, it's the opposite of justification, right? Condemnation is uh, the opposite of being justified. Uh, those who are justified have this right standing with God, and that is the description of those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying that since we are justified in Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation for us. We will not be condemned to the death and the sins that we commit that deserve the wrath of God. And so that is a beautiful verse. That is why we memorize it. We've been given this new status by God's grace, a gift that we did not deserve. But note, there's a connection that Paul makes. He makes the connection in the very next verse, uh, verse to this battle that is happening in the flesh, and he continues, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Chapter 7 was a testimony of our own lives, wasn't it? That we remain in this battle that is happening in our flesh. But what, what Paul teaches us at the very beginning of chapter 8 is that the Christian is no longer a slave to sin as he once was. No, now a Christian is free from the bondage of sin and its ultimate penalty. Now, Satan and the world... And our own sinful flesh uh, can still cause us to stumble and falter, but the promise that we receive is that there is no force that can destroy us because we possess a new life in Christ, and here it is. This is the best part. It's driven by the Spirit of God. You guys, it's driven by God's own Spirit, and we know it is. Like, listen, um, through chapter 7, the, the word law is mentioned 31 times. 31 times do you think Paul was concerned with the word law? Well, then when we go into chapter 8, do you know what the, the most spoken word in the, entire, uh, the entirety of chapter 8 is? It's spoken 21 times as opposed to the five times that was spoken before then? It's the name of God. It's the Holy Spirit. Paul says in verse 4, he says that Jesus was condemned... On the cross, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, Paul had been recently reflecting on his own weakness in the flesh, and so now he states for his own reassurance, but, but Christian, for our reassurance, that the result of Jesus' death on the cross was not only our liberation from sin, not only our justification that kept us from death, but that now our lives would fulfill the righteous requirement of the law as we seek to live lives that walk according to the Spirit of God. We're a new people, capable now of walking according to the Spirit, fulfilling the requirements of the law that we were unable to fulfill before. And we're set apart as a people sanctified, known as saints. And so that's, that's the introduction, when it only took about 20 minutes, and we're already there, you guys. So just breezing through this thing. Everybody having fun? Yeah. All right, cool. Great. Hey, listen, we're going to break uh, up the rest of this passage into three ways that the Spirit behaves in our life. That, that's how we're going to help understand how the Spirit operates in these three main ways. I want you to go ahead and be able to write them down. I want you to focus on them. Before I give you three ways uh, that the Spirit works, I'm going to give you three reasons why you ought to understand how the Spirit works. So it's three ways, three reasons. Super Baptist. It's awesome. Listen, we need to be able to recognize when the Spirit is working in our lives. We have to. That's why this is important. When we know how the Spirit operates in these specific ways, it allows us to say, man, that was the Holy Spirit at work in my life. And you know what happens when you know that? You give glory to God. You praise Him. You fulfill your purpose as a human being. That's point number one. The second is that, listen, you're going to receive, as you recognize the Spirit's movement in your life, reassurance. Oh boy, is there reassurance in this text. Reassurance that you belong to Him. Reassurance that you are a child of God. Reassurance that you will not drown in the, the sins that you can't get over. Reassurance that He intercedes on your behalf. We need to know how the Holy Spirit operates because it gives us reassurance to our heart. And the final thing, man, this, this might, well, I don't know if it's the most important, but it's a real good one. The reason why we need to be aware of how the Spirit operates is because it will challenge us. This is not just so that you would know that you belong to God. It would be so that you know how you are supposed to operate as one who belongs to God. We have a purpose. We're supposed to live to that purpose, and the Spirit convicts us according to that purpose. And so knowing how He operates will allow us to ask ourselves the question, do I see the Holy Spirit working in my life? And if I do not, and I claim to belong to the Lord, what's the problem? What do I need to do? All right, so that's your three points within three points. So much fun. This is the first actual point. This is what the Spirit does in the life of believers. We're going to find it in verse 5 through 13. The Spirit shapes believers. The Spirit shapes believers. And so we can now experience deliverance from sin's influence. Uh, as a church, we have been working through the book of Acts. And thank you to Pastor Chris. It's been awesome being able to read that book together as a family. Um, you would know, because you've been studying it, that, that the book of Acts, when we call it Acts, we actually are shortening that title uh, from the Acts of the Apostles, right? 
It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but honestly, it could really just as easily be named the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And as you've been studying it, you know that the Spirit did not just produce these miracles, the things that mirrored the miraculous works of Christ, but the Spirit produced a radical change in the hearts of believers. And that change happened both immediately and it happened progressively over a large period of time. Let's take, for example, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we get this biblical account that's, oh man, it's awesome. You're reading through Acts chapter 2 and you see that the Spirit takes a hold of Peter at Pentecost, doesn't it? This Peter, who had been this cowering guy that had denied Jesus three times, and now he's standing boldly before Christians who had just recently put his Lord to death, and he's proclaiming the gospel, and he's saying, you guys are the ones who did it. You are the ones who put the Messiah that you have been waiting for your entire lives to death. Would we not call that an immediate and radical change in the life of Peter? It is. But see, there's something equally impressive that happens in Acts chapter 2, and we might blow right over it if we, if we don't really take the time to pay attention. Because who was he talking to? He was talking to the apostles, he was talking to the people that had been gathering with him, but who else? He was talking to the people that crucified the Lord. He was talking to the people that had just murdered Jesus. And so convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit concerning sin and righteousness and judgment were these people that it says that after they repented and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is how they radically changed their life. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul as many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, all of that that they were worshiping God for. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and their things, and they were, they were distributing those proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, daily, they were attending the temple together. They were breaking bread in their own homes. They, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, and they praised God, having favor with all people. And it says, the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Friends, how is it that such a work can be done in such a small period of time? That thousands of people would change the active rhythms of their daily lives to, to be a people where one didn't exist before. How is it that the testimony of the church speaks to the endurance of that behavior over the course of 2,000 years? We're still doing it today. Well, the truth is there's a shaping that takes place in the life of a believer and it happens immediately, and it happens over time, and it produces tangible results. And so take a look at, with me at verse 5 uh, through 13. Paul's going to describe two types of people, okay? He's going to describe uh, a worldview that is shaped by the flesh, which defines the unbeliever. And then he's going to talk about a worldview that is shaped by the Spirit, which defines a believer. And I'm going to challenge you as we're reading through it to try and put uh, those two types of people into categories here. I put in a nice little nifty chart. So if anybody wants this chart, you come out to the surface afterward. I'm just handing things out like crazy. I'll give it to you. It'll be a lot of fun. This is what it says to start in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For those, uh, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and it's peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh, it is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, for who or those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life. Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give your life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now notice, there are two types of truth that happens in this passage. There is a truth that ought to reassure a lot of people in this room, that you belong to the Lord, that you are, that you are doing the things, showing the fruit that is evidenced here according to the Spirit. But there's also another group of us in this room that might be absolutely terrified. Terrified um, that, that we live in this opposite category of the flesh, terrified that we are actively living apart from Christ right now. And to that group, we're going to talk for a moment. We're going to talk about these two indications the, that, that life living according to the flesh is being characterized. The first, it's a mindset. The unbeliever has a mindset, okay? And, and by that, I, I mean that they, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And that, that does not mean that their intellect is geared towards that. What it means is that they have this basic mental orientation. They have a, a bent. They have a thought pattern. Their affections, their will, their, their reasoning is set on the things of the flesh. And some of those things might be visceral. They might be incredibly obvious to the rest of the world and to ourselves. For example, the way that lust creeps into our minds and out of our mouths, right? The way that anger seems to actively have a control, a root in our heart, and it not only affects the way that we behave in our own minds, it affects the world around us. Those things are visceral and they're obvious. But it can include less obvious things setting your mind on the flesh. See, sometimes we simply forget that God exists. We don't attribute honor to the Creator, and instead we worship creative things. A person who sets their mind on the flesh perpetually lives in that state. They never think about the things of God. They never have their minds on God's existence, and they do not contribute honor and glory to the Creator, but instead they set about worshiping the things that are created. That mindset is hostile to God actively, and here's this is terrifying it won't submit. Or obey God's law. Look at the world around us today. Doesn't that classify all of the behavior that you see on the news? All the, the new legislation that's coming out that we, and as a, as a church, we end up reacting to. It reflects a mindset that is actively hostile to God and refuses to submit to his law. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 to 32 represents this in a, 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 a well, it's a horrible way, but it's, it's a wonderful way. He articulates it. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to your parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do those things, but listen, they give approval to those who practice them. Note, the debased mind, the mind that is set on the flesh, is a mindset that not only sets out to accomplish wickedness, but it approves of the wickedness of other people actively and passively in the things that you promote and the things that you ingest. Ultimately, that mindset cannot please God according to Paul. And man, that person doesn't care. But listen, church, if our aim in life, our chief goal is to bring glory to God, then you have to consider that an entire demographic of humanity is living a life that will never, from the point that they are born to the point that they die, fulfill their ultimate purpose that God has created humanity for. Is that not a tragedy? And the second thing that he says is this. He says, this lifestyle, a life that lives according to the flesh, ends in death. Paul could not be more clear about that. He says in verse 6 and 10 and 13 that, that the end of this active decision to reject God will be death. It will be eternal separation from God. And that is after you live a life that is devoid of the purpose that God created you for. Sobering. It's a sobering picture. Paul balances it. This is the good news. He balances it with the hope that is produced by the way that the Spirit shapes us. Listen to what he says. He assures us in verse 5 that those who live according to the Spirit, man, we have a new mindset. We were once set on the flesh, but now we are set on the things of the Spirit, on God's Word and what it produces. And not only do we have a new mindset saturated in this, this life and peace, but the Spirit himself gives this new believer the ability to slay the desires of the flesh through the power of the Spirit. Paul describes it another way in Romans chapter 12. And that's another chapter, by the way. If you're going to skip, I guess we're skipping lots of chapters. You should just read the whole book of Romans. But if you're going to be piecemeal in this thing, why don't you take some time this week and you read in Romans chapter 12? Because Romans chapter 12, whole boy, does Paul describe specifically the way that the Spirit is actively living this out in our lives. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And who does that? Holy Spirit. Good answer. The renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Summary statement, how you live flows out of who you are. I thought that was clever. It's not mine. How you live flows out of who you are. Christian, you have been freed by the Holy Spirit to obey God. And the implications of this passage is that he is producing life in you now. And he will ultimately resurrect you one day by his own power. This is supposed to produce in us worship and assurance in our hearts. 
and Cedar Home as, as a litmus test for our own lives today to see and be encouraged by the evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. Remember, we're going to be, we're going to be challenged by it. We're going to be reassured by it. It's going to draw us to worship. Listen to these questions. I want you to think about them. Do you care for the things of God now? Do you care for the things of God now? What is the, what is the focus of your life now? What do you think about all the time? What are you preoccupied with, with the goals and the ambitions and the desires and the appetites of your heart? Are they centered on the things of this world? What's your mindset on, Christian? What is your focus? So the Spirit shapes believers. We see that now. We can now experience deliverance from sin's influence through the power of the Spirit. Be aware of it. Here's the second thing that the Spirit does. It's not the only thing. It's just in this text. I looked at Brian just making sure. He's, he's my litmus test. The Spirit assures believers we can now experience hope in the midst of suffering. This is a good one. We're going to start in verse 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into the fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. This one's fun. Man, this is the sort of passage um, our mind ought to default to when life happens. There's a connection between, um, between our previous point that the Spirit shapes us actively as believers then to the assurance that we have in Him. Because if we're living according to the Spirit, what's going to happen is we're going to root out and destroy the misdeeds of our body. We're going to put those things to death, which is great. But see, then Paul says that this is evidence that the Spirit governs you. And if the Spirit controls you, if He governs you, then, then the connection is made that you are one of God's sons. Man, that's an absolute miracle. Let, read that again. It says, verse 15, it says, If you did not receive, or for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father, man, there are some illustrations that transcend time. Jesus loved talking about marriage, for example. He loved talking about brides and bridegrooms. You know what other illustration constantly finds itself into Scripture in, in our lives? It, it compels us. It drives us. It's adoption, you guys. Adoption. Every culture knows about adult adoption. Every culture considers it to be a beautiful thing. To be adopted is to guarantee that the son had all the rights and the privileges of a natural-born son. And so adoption could serve to, in a moment, elevate a person from, that was completely apart from their doing 
from absolutely nothing to everything in an instant. Listen, the Bible clearly indicates here and in other places that this is the relationship of those God calls to know him and to love him. We were former enemies of God. We had the mindset that was actively opposed to the things of God. And through Christ, we have been given access to the type of relationship that not only provides forgiveness, but friends, it provides the relationship to call the creator of the universe, Papa. Fathers in this room, there's a day when your little children, they stop calling you daddy and they start calling you dad. And it tears your heart out. <laughs> because there's something in that word. It's not like my daughter loves me less. I'm, I'm lamenting here now. It's not like she loves me less. But man, when she used to call me daddy, there was trust and there was love and affection that was unadulterated, untainted and pure. Christian, you approach the creator of all things and you call him Papa. Does that not produce assurance in your heart? And have you considered the implications of verse 16 and 17? Not only does God grant you a legal status, but he has also granted you a spirit to convince you that what God has done and promised you is true at all times and in every circumstance. And why does this matter? Oh, I hope you know why. Because as we suffer in this world, and as Jesus promised we would suffer in this world because we represent him, as Paul and the apostles lived out with their blood the way that we suffer in this world, as you all actively suffer now, would you not be assured that you possess a helper and a comforter that will in those moments of darkest despair remind you with the question, do you remember who you are? Do you remember who you belong to? You are mine, and I don't lose those who belong to me. The Spirit bears witness perpetually. That means without ceasing that we belong to God, that we will one day be glorified by God. Cedarholm, do you possess a hope for the future that God promises you? Does that hope stirred within you remind you that you possess the Holy Spirit within you now that helps you to endure the suffering that you are actively suffering in today? Man. The Holy Spirit shapes believers, but he also bears witness and assures believers that we belong to him. The final thing that this text talks about that the Spirit does is the Spirit intercedes for believers. Um, we can trust God to pray when we don't know how. Full disclosure, when my wife comes up to me and she says, you ought to, you ought to take a look at Romans 8. It's, it's a great chapter. And, and, and half of you have actually come up to me before today and you said, man, it's my favorite chapter in the Bible. Favorite chapter, favorite book. That's what David said to me the other day. And it should be. It's a great chapter, but that is not the reason I was just absolutely stoked to tear into this passage. Um, I am stoked to tear into this passage with you today because of this final portion of the passage, this final point that we get to meditate on, because it is absolutely true that the Holy Spirit shapes us. 
But the truth is also that there are passages in Scripture that point to that, maybe even more articulately, right? Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5 about the fruits of the Spirit. We talked about how Romans chapter 12 shows us how this is lived out actively in our lives. Maybe you want to go there to see how the Spirit works in your life. And it is true that this Spirit, or that this passage tells us that we receive assurance in the Holy Spirit, but you might turn to 1 John chapter 4, and you'll read how we have this boldness in the Spirit that produces in our hearts the ability to approach the throne of God. Maybe you go there to learn about assurance, but oh my, while these first two points regarding the Holy Spirit are absolutely true, you take a look at this passage today, and you are given a sneak peek into the operation of the Spirit that is both breathtaking and it is unique to Scripture, unique to the biblical narrative. It is about the process of prayer. How many of you all in here struggle when you pray? Just be honest. Just struggle to pray sometimes. Okay, I got a couple hands. How many of you struggle to know how to pray? Even though you, you have, you have the, the Lord's Prayer and you're fully aware of how that's spelled out, sometimes you just don't know what to say. I'll tell you what, in my mind, um, even, maybe even before I was wrestling with this passage, I visualize in my mind when I'm praying, I'm, I'm standing before the throne of God. I'm standing before the Father. My head's down. I'm not crazy, right? I wouldn't look at God. Um, but, but I'm speaking to God the Father. I'm speaking to my Abba. And yet, in my mind, I don't really think of the Son and I certainly don't think of the Holy Spirit. This is fascinating. Scripture testifies that Jesus intercedes on our behalf to the Father. But here, we are intimately made aware that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, speaks on behalf of believers. All persons of the Trinity, all God, are participating in prayer. And they're doing so for your sake, Christian. That's amazing. But it's not the whole story. In this passage, what we get to see in verse 26 and 27, we get to see the how and we get to see the why of how the Holy Spirit operates in this way. This is what it says in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Hmm. He helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What weakness is Paul referring to? It says, it says there, we don't know how to pray. We don't know how to pray. Um, as we build out the context of, of this passage, it's absolutely fascinating what the implications are here. Because in verse 18 through 25, Paul had just finished unpacking why we need to pray as Christians. In the context of suffering, we live in this broken world, right? And it is nothing compared to what it was in the beginning. And it is certainly nothing compared to what it will be when Christ returns, he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Christians, creation groans to be what God will make it in the end. Literally, it groans in anticipation of what God promises he will do. And as we are subjected to trial and persecution and the hardship that sin produces in the world around us, we groan in anticipation of what God's going to do to fix it. We groan as society around us rejects us. We groan as we experience pain, the pain of our aging bodies, the pain of, of losing those that we love. We groan because the suffering of this world is real, whether, whether you belong to God or not. But if you belong to God, you groan because you desire to be with God now, along with everyone you love. And sometimes in a broken world like this one, we groan to such an extent that we have absolutely no idea what to pray. No idea what to say to God in that moment. Sometimes life presents us with impossible choices, relentless trials, overwhelming options that we can't sort through. What is the will of God that we should pray for in those moments? What is the will of God that we should pray for in those moments when we can't see to the other side? When we don't know what the possibilities might be? How do we approach God, even with a heart that desires to please him, when we don't know what to say? Friends, this is the miracle. This is that moment when you should be assured in the spirit. You should bring You should want to worship God because he does this. You should be challenged to see it. When we don't know what to say, when we don't know how to pray for the will of God in our lives, the Bible testifies that the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you think he was intentional when he used the same word, groaning? The Spirit is God. He is God. He knows the will of the Father in our lives, and he prays to the Father for us that God's will would be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven when we have no idea what to pray. Man, the implications of that truth is absolutely life-changing. 
We're called to be a prayerful people. But there are so many times that we have absolutely no idea what to pray because we are facing things that are incomprehensible. And so if you are seeking after the Lord and you are committing your mind and your heart and yourself to his will in your life, this passage today tells us that not only does he hear our prayers, but he prays for you when you don't know what to say. And some of us are groaning here today. We are desperate for God to intervene in the circumstance that only you know about. We are longing for the day that he is going to call us home. Our text today encourages us to give glory to God for the miraculous work that he has done on our behalf to pray for us in those moments. It gives us the assurance to know that he is interceding for us without ceasing, and it will challenge us to consider, man, do we even desire this? Do we desire that the will of God would be lived out in our lives and prayed for actively for us? Do we trust his will, even in his prayers over our own? So that's it, church. That's how the Holy Spirit shapes you. He shapes you. Man, that's how he shapes you according to this passage. He, he shapes you. He bears witness and he assures your hearts and he intercedes without ceasing on your behalf. Now, the truth is, full disclosure, that while these three ways I hope you understand are huge for your life right now, man, they are just a little taste of how the Holy Spirit operates in your life today. There are so many more ways. You can see, for example, that he teaches and reminds us all the things that Jesus taught. He seals believers in the salvation that they have received. He dwells in us, making us the temple of the Lord. He convicts the world concern, through us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He has the power to bring renewal and the washing of regeneration and so much more. He is the eternal God. He was present with God in the beginning at creation. He has been at work in the people of God since the beginning, and he will continue to work mightily in this world today. And so I encourage you and implore you, do not be confused about who the Holy Spirit is. Man, be informed. Let's be people of the word that ingest this thing and allow it to define who we are as a people. And I encourage you as we close today to consider whether the truths that we just discussed here today even apply. Man, if you're a believer in this room, God shapes you. He bears witness and assures you. He intercedes on behalf of you. But it only applies if you belong to him. It only applies if you understand that through Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who has been promised since the beginning, who was born by the power of the Holy Spirit, the line of David, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for the sins that we committed, who rose again to prove that by God's grace, through faith in Christ, we might escape the wrath of God that we deserved and one day be resurrected to everlasting life with Him. If you do not believe that, or if you are not sure of that, I assure you that you must not leave today until you cry out to the nearest saint to talk to you about that. It is the most important thing you will ever do in your life. Why would you not talk to those who have that hope? In church, if you belong to the Lord, what are you going to do about it? 
We asked a lot of questions here today, and, and they are not meant to condemn you, right? They're not meant to condemn you. If you belong to the Lord, you cannot lose your salvation. So that struggle and battle that you have in your flesh over sin is not a sign that you don't belong to him. It's a sign that the Lord is wrestling within you. As you consider the questions that we posed here today and you answer them in your heart, let me suggest that now is the time that you ought to make changes to readjust the mindset that you're living in from the things of this world to the things of the Spirit. Let me suggest that you walk confidently in your adoption as sons of God and not just sons, but heirs with Christ. And let me encourage you as you groan to seek after the will of God and to be encouraged and faithful that the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf even now. It's a lot to consider. And you don't have to do that in isolation. You have wonderful leaders here who are just chomping at the bit to be unleashed to talk to you about it. Would we not do that together? We can do that together, and by the evidence of our text today, we can do that with the help of our Lord. And so let's do that together. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you, you are good, and your word is good. God, thank you for your gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for the truth of it, that, that you lived uh, a life that, that taught us how we ought to live, that showed a perfect example, that lived according to your righteous standard. Lord, that you willingly went to the cross on our behalf. Lord, that you died a death of a slave, that, that we could be freed from sin and find our identity fully in you. Lord, thank you for your great grace that you, that you have given us, God, that, that by faith we may be saved. But Lord, thank you for your grace that includes these wonderful promises, promises assured by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that, that you are shaping us actively as a people and as, as a person. God, you, you are actively in every single away, reassuring us that we belong to you. And Lord, even now you are interceding for us as our hearts groan. Let us be a people that seek to bring glory to your name by making disciples of Jesus Christ in all of the ways that you have called us to. We love you, Jesus. We give you all the praise and all the glory, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.